Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Please open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 12 as we read God's Word together. The Scripture says that the Scriptures, all Scripture, is inspired by God. Now, the word inspired is kind of an interesting thing. It literally means to to breathe into. But the Greek word is a little different. The Greek word is God breathe. The Greek word focuses on the breath that comes out of God's mouth, right? And so the idea is that this book is every bit of God's word, every bit as much of God's word as if he were here speaking out of his own mouth, as it were. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. It's the truth. One of the phrases that uh, you regularly hear uh, these days is the right side of history, right? I want to be on the right side of history. I don't want to be on, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And it's an interesting phrase. It speaks to uh, the fact that we all see our lives uh, in narrative form. Uh, we all see ourselves as a part of some story, and we are characters uh, in that story. And of course, it implies that if you are on the right side of history, then you're the protagonist in the story. You're the good guy in the story. Everybody wants to be the good guy because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Right? You, don't, you don't want to be the antagonist. You don't want to be the bad guy in the story. But again, we, we all think this way. We see ourselves in the context of a story. We are a people of a story. Kurt Ranke, who's a German scholar who's written a lot uh, about these things, he said that human beings are more precisely homo neurons than we are homo sapiens. Uh, so you may have heard the phrase homo sapiens. It means that we are a, a reasonable people. We are people who can reason or we're wise people, the wise human or the, uh, the reasonable people, the reasonable human. 
Um, but Ranke says that we're, we're more precisely, we're more correctly homo neurons. In fact, he says, you know, people aren't always reasonable or wise, but they always see themselves within a story. We always understand our lives within the context of some sort of narrative. And whatever this story is and whoever's writing this story defines what is good and bad and which way we should go. And this, of course, is why so much of the Bible is a story. This is why so much of the Bible, of course, is narrative. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, you know, I thought to myself, why doesn't the Bible just say, like, do this and don't do this, and that's how you should live, right? Well, why does it tell us all these stories? Why does it have all these narratives about it? Well, of course, the Bible actually used to be like that. The Bible used to be very simple. It used to just have a couple of commands. All the Bible was, at one point, was God saying to man, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, and don't eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the Bible was very short at that time. It's very easy to memorize. It was very easy to you know, hold on to. There wasn't a lot of competing narratives. It wasn't hard to know what was good and right and true because there was just one story. And Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. All they had to do was to listen to his very simple commands. But of course, that story changed. The serpent came into the garden. What did he do? He told Adam and Eve a different story. He gave, he introduced a competing narrative. And he said, look, Adam and Eve, God's not out for your best interest. He, he knows that when you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. He's holding back from you. In fact, Adam and Eve, if you don't eat of this fruit, then you'll be on the wrong side of history. And Adam and Eve thought to themselves, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So they, they bought into a different story. They bought into a competing narrative. And from that time to this time, there's been all kinds of stories told. And it's hard to know in a world like this, with all these kind of competing narratives, what is the true story? Which again, is what I said, this is why we need the Bible. This is why so much of the scripture is narrative, is story. God is telling us a story and he's actually inviting us to be actors in the story. That's who you should understand yourself to be as a Christian, as a part of the story. This is, this is not one of, the Bible is not this thing that exists out here and we learn from it. It's actually a story that calls us into it. And ultimately, if you truly are a believer, you enter into this narrative that God is telling. So for this reason, we are going to spend 12 weeks this year in 2019 as a church looking at the story. And we're looking particularly at the beginning of this story in the book of Genesis uh, we just finished a 10-week series in the book of Exodus looking at the result of some of these false narratives, which is why we need all of these commands and laws to give us framework and structure within that, uh, within this story. Um, and before that, we looked at the book of Acts for a few weeks, talking about how this story goes global. Um, but before that, if you were here, this has been a few months ago now, we looked at, we did a sermon series that we called Genesis Act 1, and in that sermon series, we looked at we had four sermons from the beginning of this story, Genesis 1 through really Genesis 11. But this week we picked up in what we're calling Genesis Act 2, um, where we, we are introduced to this man named Abraham. Uh, now Abraham, or Abram as he was once called, it, it really cannot be overstated how important understanding Abraham is for understanding Christianity, for understanding 
all of the Bible. And so over these next four weeks, we're going to be really spending this whole time looking at this man, looking at his life, looking at what God does through him. And, uh, and I think we're going to gain a lot from understanding his importance in this grand story. Now today, as we look at this, I want to look at three points with you as we think about the text that Lou just read. First of all, what is God doing in this text? Secondly, who is God doing it to? And then third, how is God doing it? What is God doing? Who is God doing it to? And how is God doing? So what is God doing? Now, this is a very, this is a very important story. If you were here with us back when we looked at Genesis part one, we said that as early as Genesis three, there are hints, there are signals of the coming of Jesus, of the coming of Messiah, of the coming of someone who will undo this, this trouble that we found ourselves in, will undo the curse of humanity. But you, the story really picks up steam here in Genesis chapter 12. I mean, if you were asked the question, where did Jesus come from? This is, re- this is really where that story begins to take place. And of course, the story begins in a strange place. If you think about the first 11 chapters of Scripture, you can think about it in this way. In the beginning, God created everything good, and the man and the woman knew God. They had intimate fellowship with God. They knew God very closely. And the presence of God was fully known, right? They were in the garden. They were with God. And if you look at really the narrative, it's as if humanity is just getting further and further and further away from God. And our understanding of God is growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Most of the stories in the first 11 chapters of scripture are, are bad stories. There's, there's bad things happening. People are running away from God. There's, there's a few bright lights here and there. People like Enoch, people like Noah, obviously. But most of the people in the first 11 chapters of Scripture are, are forgetting about God. They're, they're, they're pursuing their own things. They're, they're, they're giving themselves to the worship of something else. In fact, that's where we meet Abraham. Uh, Joshua 24 uh, gives us a little context. Uh, it, the Bible says in Joshua 24, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, who was Abraham's father, the father of Abraham, and Nahor and of Nahor, who was Abraham's brother, they served other gods. So you have, Ab- you have Terah, Nahor, Abraham, they're serving other gods, and then it says, but then I took your father Abraham from beyond the Jordan River. And of course, from beyond the Euphrates River, rather. This is God calling a people unto himself. The world, almost at this point, it's, it's fascinating to think about, had basically all but forgotten about God. Uh, they were on the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. This was a place where there was lunar worship. They were worshiping the moon. They were worshiping other deities. They had totally forgotten about God, the God that we would come to know as the God of Abraham, the God of Israel. And God in his grace called Abraham and said to him, go from your father's house. I am going to do something great. I am going to make you a great nation. And so what is God doing here? He calls Abraham to a chosen land to be the father of a chosen people. This is very important. So that through Abraham, so that through his people, so that through the offspring of Abraham, God could be known. This is very important. What is God doing? He is establishing his people that were going to live among other people. And through this people, God would be known. And we see this in the calling. Look again at the first couple of verses with me. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. But I really want you to feel this. How is God primarily making himself known? How is God primarily going to bring his blessing to the world? How is God going to do this? How? He's going to do it through a people. Through a people. Through a people that he has established. Through people who live together and work together and worship together. God's plan is that through a people that he is establishing, he would be known and experienced. Now this is dramatically instructive for us. Because do you know, you know what the church is? Do you know who you are? You are a people that God has established in order to make himself known. How is God, the God of the universe, going to be known in our city? He's going to be known through his church, through his people, through the people that he has established. How is God going to bring blessing to the city through this people, through the people that God has established? He is establishing a people among other peoples so that he may be rightly known. And you know, the amazing thing about this group is that God has called you in. God has called you out to to know him. Uh, God has called you to be a people from, from people that don't know the Lord. You know, some of you all have a different journey of how you came to know the Lord. God has called each of you from a, from a different place. You know, some of you came out of uh, moralism, right, which is not the gospel. But you came out of a background that said, look, you have to behave this way and follow these laws. And if you do this, then you can know God. I had a conversation this week with a couple who came out of a background like this. They were incredibly harmed by this. And they experienced great judgmentalism, and, and, and they experienced just a lot of self-righteousness. And they are coming, and they're, they're, they're nervous to, to join a church. They're ner- nervous to be a part of a community because they've had a bad experience. It wasn't a gospel-filled church. And I said, your problem is not with the church. Your problem is with sin, the sin of self-righteousness. And you see self-righteousness in church, and you see self-righteousness out of the church. We see self-righteousness everywhere. Some of you maybe have come to the Lord, come into to be a, a follower of the Lord from a different religion. You know, I was having a, another conversation with a, a guy that has come to know Jesus out of Islam. And he saw Islam, he was reading actually through the Hadith. And he just saw so many of the inconsistencies and uh, the strange things in the Hadith. And he, and, and he in, a, in a Muslim family, realized this is not right. And so he began to explore, and, and, and he began to read the Bible, and he began to see the incredible consistency and beauty of how God has revealed himself in Scripture, and he came to know the Lord. Now he's coming to be a part of our church. It's an amazing story. You see, what God is doing, he's calling people from, from all of these different places to be a people where he can make himself known. Most of us, though, we, we definitely live in a city where the predominant worldview the predominant way that people understand the world is through what you would call a humanistic lens. So as Christians, we're primarily theistic, which means that we believe that God is our highest end. He is our highest truth, right? How do you know what is true and right? How do you know if you're in the right story? How do you know if you're on the right side of history? Well, you have to know God. And if you know God, then he is your aim. He is the chief end. But, but most people in Atlanta, certainly, in the kind of the age we're in, Look at life through a humanistic lens. And humanism, just a quick definition, is a system of values and beliefs that is based on the assumption that people are basically good 
and that problems can be solved using reason instead of religion. It's a belief that people are good. People can figure it out. All we need to do is think more and work harder. The highest success, the highest good is human good. Uh, human beings are the chief end, if you will. And of course, this is, this is thinking that has flowed out of Enlightenment thinking. Pre-Enlightenment, people got meaning from higher structures, from their family, from their community, from their government, from God, from, from structures that they saw as above them. And, and, and post-Enlightenment, people have realized, no, I don't need these other structures to give meaning. I assign meaning. I am the highest end. I am the highest good. This is the essence of humanism. It's all about the human. It's all about uh, human existence and human purpose. Uh, a few years ago, there was a woman named Diana Nyan, and she swam from Cuba to Florida. Does anybody remember this story? It had never been done. No one had ever actually swam from Cuba to Florida. Now, the amazing thing about this woman is she did it when she was 64 years old. So any of you who are 64, need a little inspiration, here you go. She swam from Cuba to Florida. But after the swim, she did an interview with uh, Oprah. And she told Oprah that she was an atheist. She says, I I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And she, and she said that. She said, to me, my definition of God is humanity and is the love of humanity. And then Oprah responded, this is interesting. Oprah said, well, I don't call you an atheist then. I think if you believe in the awe and wonder and the majesty, then that is what God is. That is what, that is what God is. She said it again. It's not a bearded guy in the sky. And again, this is kind of classic humanism, right? She says, all I believe in is in humanity. And I believe in the awe and wonder of humanity. It's the human spirit. And the, the goal of the human and, human and humanism is to be wealthy, is to have material things. This is why materialism is so often connected with humanism. To laugh is to feel fulfilled. Now, what's interesting about Atlanta is there's kind of two branches of humanism that are pretty prevalent here. There's secular humanism, right? So pursuing man as the highest end without any sort of God involved. Secularism, of course, is the belief uh, that there is no God, the belief that religion shouldn't play any sort of role in public life. Of course, this is uh, the way a lot of people think in Atlanta. They're, they're secular people, uh, that God shouldn't be a part of what we're doing, and that, that really fulfillment in life is found in winning. It's found in being on top. It's found in victory. It's having successes and having material things. But there's also, and so I would say secular humanism says that man's chief end is to glorify himself. It's to tell the best story for himself that he can tell. But there's also in Atlanta, and, and certainly throughout the world, what I would call Christian humanism. And Christian humanism is basically humanism with Christian labels, right? Man is still the chief end. Man is still the top. But there's a little Christianity involved with it. Um, and rather, uh, John Piper has famously said, this is something that's true, that God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied in him. Some of y'all have heard that. God is most glorified by us when we're satisfied by him, right? This is theism, right? God is my aim. I am satisfied in him. But Christian humanism, the, the mantra of Christian humanism would be God is most glorified with us when we are most glorified by him. Or rather, God is most satisfied with us 
when we are most glorified by him. So again, it's a branch of Christianity where still the end is the man, being wealthy, being fulfilled, being glorified. And the reason I spend all of this time understanding worldview is this. This is important for you to understand. You live in a world where if you have a truly theistic worldview, where you are resting in God's story, you are resting in the goodness of God, you are trying to find worth and value in God and God alone. That is a very strange story in a humanistic world that you find yourselves in. That's going to be very different from the world around us. And this is exactly where Abraham is. He's living in a land just like that, in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. They're they're worshiping the moon. They're worshiping false gods. They've given themselves to lunar worship. They had forgotten about God. They were worshiping themselves, and God called him out. And basically says to Abraham, I'm going to make myself known through you. And I want you to hear this. That's the same thing that God is saying to you. God wants to make himself known through you. What is God doing here? He's establishing a people that we're going to live among other peoples. And through this people, God would be known. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's establishing a people. That's what he's doing in in every church that, that worships the name of the Lord Jesus. He's establishing a people that lives within other people, that through that people, there would be light, that God would be known. If you are in Christ, this is who you're called to be. This is what God is doing. He's calling you to be his people. And this is a theme that we see in Genesis 12 that runs all the way through the rest of the Bible. In a verse that I want us to think about this summer as a church, even as we think about outward-facing relationships, it's 1 Peter 2.9. That's one of my favorite verses. Let me just read it for you. Here's what it says. Listen to the, listen to the language. Listen to the imagery of this passage. It says to the church, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Notice the Old Testament language here. You are a holy nation, a people called for God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. You hear that? You are the nation. You are the priests. You are the people of God's possession. And hear this. You are the ones that God has called from all of these different worldviews. From all of these different narratives, God has called you into his story. And he's saying, look, as you know my story, and as you know my essence, as you know my being, I am going to show myself to the world through you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. So what is God doing? God is establishing a people through whom he's going to make himself known. Second point, though, to whom is God making himself known? Now, this is an interesting part of the passage. God calls this one man Abraham, and he says that through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that, if you really think about that, just think about that from Abraham's perspective. Here he is, a man living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and God says, every family on earth is going to be blessed by you. Every family. You're going to touch every single family on earth. Now that is a big promise. How is this even going to happen? Now I think something that's interesting about this, if you've ever thought about this passage, is that the first thing that God does when God says, I'm going to bless the families of the earth through you, Abraham, the first thing that God does is God calls Abraham away from his family. He leaves his family. He had to go away. God was going to bless the world through Abraham, but the first thing he needed to do was to get away from his family. He had to go to a new land 
where God was, would establish this people, where God would establish this family. And of course, as you read along in the story, God eventually gave them laws. He eventually gave them a way of worshiping Him, where there would be a distinctiveness about them. And again, I want you to notice the times in Israel's history when they were most used by God to bless the world was when they were most distinct from the world. The times in Israel's history when they were most used by God to bless the world is when they were most devoted to God and most distinct from the world. And, and, and I want to say the same thing for us. When you understand yourself as a people called by God, as distinct from the world, as different from the world, that is when God can really use you. And you know, we talk a lot about outward-facing relationships, but I just want to say, you need these inward-facing relationships. You need to be here. You need to be reminded of the story. You need to be in small group. You need to be having times of personal devotion. You need to be having times of family devotion. All of these things we talk about. You need these inward-facing relationships that are creating in you a person that is reflective of God's glory and character so that through you, the people that God is calling out of this world to display His marvelous light so that God can actually show Himself through you. That's why we need these moments. That's why we need to be stirred along toward faith and good deeds. God is preparing you to have a potent and real outward-facing witness. There's this old phrase that says, you know, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that before? You're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. You, you think about spiritual things all the time that you know, you know practical good to the world. And I would actually argue that the opposite is true. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. And one of the things that we talk about at Christ's Covenant is being kingdom ambassadors, being a kingdom ambassador, being an ambassador for this kingdom, for the kingdom of Christ. Um, and what does that mean? If, you, if you're kind of new to us, you may be saying, what does that mean? Well, think about an ambassador. There's a guy named Joel Rayburn. He's the ambassador, he's the United States ambassador to Syria, okay? So just think about that job. Joel Rayburn, living there in Syria. Now, he doesn't go to Syria to become a Syrian, right? We send him to Syria to actually be an American, living in Syria. And he is protected by the United States military, and all of his wealth is protected by United States banks, and his language, and his identity, and his family, and his friends. They're, they're here in America. His true identity is not in Syria. He's living in Syria, but his true identity is in America. He is an ambassador for America to Syria. And because he doesn't, because all of his wealth and identity and personhood is wrapped up in America, he doesn't need. Syria to provide that for him, right? He, 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 all of his strength and wealth and protection is here. And so he can actually go to Syria as a servant to Syria, working for the good of Syria and working for the good of his homeland. He can actually be a good ambassador for those people. And I just want you to hear this. That's exactly what God is calling you to be in Christ, to primarily be a citizen of a never-ending kingdom where all of your security and wealth and 
relationships and strength and identity is wrapped up in who you are as a son or daughter of the living God and who you are as a citizen of a never-ending kingdom. That's who you are. And God, in His wisdom, has sent you into the little kingdoms of this world, all over this world, every week as we scatter, to be ambassadors. And God in his wisdom has sent you to so many different places. You know, there are people in this room and you're going to go to schools all across our city as ambassadors for Christ. You're going to scatter into banks, into consulting firms. Some of you are in medicine. Some of you guys just, you live in neighborhoods all over the city. Think about what God is doing in his wisdom. See, to whom is God... What is God doing? He's calling a people, and through a people, he's going to make himself known. To whom is he going to make himself known? He's going to make himself known to all the families. What has God done? He is scattering his church all over the city, all over the world. And as we go out and build relationships and spread out, we have seen this gospel go, this good news go, this manifestation of God go, literally all to the corners of the earth. God is making himself known as we outwardly go as ambassadors to everyone in the world. Abraham, God wanted to prepare Abraham to be a blessing for the whole world. Even this world that saw things totally different from Abraham. And God wants to do the same thing through you. And he's doing that now. I pray that he's preparing you now to be a faithful ambassador. So what is God doing? He's manifesting himself through a people. To whom is he doing it? He's doing it to every family on earth. And the last thing is, how is God doing this? In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews kind of gives this like very famous uh, all-star list of those who had faith. And it, it talks about their faith, but, but in all of the, the, the characters that, that are mentioned there in Hebrews 11, it, 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 their, their faith is known by things that they did. They're commended because of their faith, but their faith is known because of some action they took. So look at the passage. This is Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, about Abraham. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 4. Abraham is commended for his faith. But how do we know that Abraham had faith? How, how, is, how is Abraham's faith known and proved and shown? It was shown through what he did. He did a very hard thing. He left his home. He left a place that was very comfortable. He did something that was hard in order to show that he really believed the word of God, in order to show that he really was obeying God. And so I just want to close with this. God has called you to be a people where he can make himself known through you to all corners of this city, in some cases to all corners of this world. But how is God going to do that? He's going to do that through your obedient response of faith. As you step out in faith. Abraham's response of faith was to leave his homeland. What is your response of faith? What is your response of faith? What does it mean for you to be an ambassador? For you to, to be one that God has called through whom he's making himself known? I just want to give you a couple of examples as we close. Just some stories 
that I've seen in my ministry. Uh, as many of y'all know, I pastored First Baptist Church in Covington, Georgia. And uh, one of the guys that, that was there was a guy named Ken Wynn. He was a deacon, good guy, good, like, just good man, you know? Deacon in the church. He was the district attorney, okay? There was another man in the town that had been in the town for many years named Willie Smith, and Willie was in and out of trouble all the time. Ken was the district attorney, okay? Keep this in mind. And so, as the district attorney, when people got in trouble, he had to prosecute them, right? So Ken, as the district attorney, was doing his job prosecuting this guy named Willie Smith. He prosecuted him several times. Willie Smith, I think, the last time did something pretty serious, had to go to jail for a couple of years. When Willie Smith got out of jail, Ken went, the district attorney, found him, pursued him, called him up, took him out to lunch, started building a relationship with him. Keep, keep this in mind. This guy is the, the very one that prosecuted him. He started studying scripture with Willie. They started reading the Bible together. But next thing you know, Willie comes to know the Lord. He becomes a Christian. He and Ken build a great friendship. Uh, and they really became brothers. And, and eventually Willie started coming to our church. And it was just this amazing thing to see the, the guy that formerly prosecuted this other guy had pursued a true friendship with him. And this man's life was changed forever. And really, that, seeing that happen affected our whole community. Another story. This is a guy named Mike, about a guy named Mike and Sherry. This is from our church in Birmingham. Normal, good folks. Mike retired from Alabama Power. Okay, just like a good Alabama Power company man, you know. Retired, had a sweet little wife. And in retirement, they got challenged to go on a short-term mission trip to the Middle East to work with Persian people, people from Iran. Uh, and so they were a little nervous to go. That was a big deal for them. They'd never done anything like that. But they went. They went on this short-term trip. They served these people. They prayed when they were in the country. And then they came back to Birmingham. Well, because they'd, they'd served these Iranians, because they'd served these, these Persian folks over there um, overseas, there was a party in their neighborhood in a picnic, and it was a bunch of Iranians. It was a, it was a group of Iranians from Birmingham they were having this party, and so they went. They just went to the party. They just go, and they, I think they brought some, you know, they brought a side. They did the thing, you know. And they're standing in line, waiting to get their food. They struck up a conversation with this young couple. Mike and she were in their 60s at this time. They struck up a couple with this uh, conversation with this couple that were in their 20s that had moved to the United States from Iran, and they just started building a friendship. And they got each other's numbers, and Mike and Sherry had them over for dinner. And the, the couple loved Mike and Sherry because they were far from home, and they saw in Mike and Sherry kind of like parents. You know, they, 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 they saw them as like mom and dad. They could give them wisdom. They could help keep, take care of them. And this little couple from Iran, from a Persian background, came to faith in Jesus. They came to know Jesus. They came to see Jesus as Lord, and they believed that because they saw the truth. They, draw, they saw the true story in the life of Mike and Sherry. And I give you all those two stories because I, I just want you to say, the, the people that I mentioned tonight, they couldn't be any more normal people. Like they didn't have, none of them have seminary degrees. None, none of them are like super Christian. They're just normal, good folks that took a step of obedience. They took a step of obedience. They did something that God was asking them to do. God is calling to himself a people. And through a people, he is going to make his story and his character and his goodness and his gospel known 
And if God has called you, if you are one of the ones that has, has faith in him, I want you to hear this. Faith is always accompanied by action. And so I just want to ask you tonight, what is that hard step to do? What, what is God calling you to do? What is your hard step of faith this summer? Now, I want to say this. As you leave, I don't want you to think to yourself, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go be like Abraham. I'm going to go, I'm going to go be like Abraham. You know what happens if you decide to go be like Abraham? You know, Abraham in this chapter, he does this amazing thing. He leaves his homeland. He obeys God. But you know what he does later in the chapter? He sells his wife to Pharaoh. He does this horrible thing. He, he totally makes an idiot of himself, okay? And so I, I don't want you to leave here looking to Abraham. If you leave here looking to Abraham, you might do a good thing tonight and a stupid thing tomorrow. And you'll feel totally worthless and you'll feel totally... You'll quit. You'll be like, I can't do this. It's no sense trying to be used by God because I can't do it. Now, the only way for you to actually be used by God is to look to the one that Abraham was looking to. You see that passage in Hebrews 11 says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, they were living in tents, but they were looking forward to a day when there would be a city. They didn't build a city, but they believed that there was going to be a city. And really what the Bible is telling us here is that Abraham knew that something greater than Abraham was coming. He knew that there would be someone that would come along that would build a city, that would do something that was more significant than the tent of faith that Abraham had. He would build a city with foundations. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to build a city, to establish a city, to establish for you and for me an eternal, never-ending, foundational home. And, and he's been so gracious to us because he's, he's given us a covering and he's given us a future. And what I mean by that is this, in a few minutes we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial where we look back and we look forward. And as you take this meal, if you are in Christ, I invite you to first of all look back. To look back and believe with me that your righteousness is not in what you're doing. It's not in doing great things like Abraham did. No, your righteousness is in Christ and in his righteousness. Your righteousness is wrapped up in the fact that God himself came and gave himself for you. And in him, in Jesus, you have a covering. If you don't have that covering, you may go out and do something very bold. You may go out and do something very great for the Lord. And the next thing you know, you'll mess up. And you know what? You'll be so discouraged. You'll say, I quit. You've done this before. You have this experience. You said, you know what? I'm going to go do it. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to go share my faith with this person. And you get out there and maybe you do it and it feels good. And then the next day you do it and you mess up and you quit and you feel so ashamed. You say, I'll never put myself out there again. And, and if you're following the way of Abraham, you'll always quit because you don't have a covering with Abraham. All you have is your performance. But if you're really looking to Christ, you have a covering you can fail and realize, you know what? My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. His, his grace has already covered me. I, I'm not identified as this faith here. No, I'm identified as someone who needs a savior. So as you take this meal, remember that you have a covering, but also remember that you have a future. You have a future. We take this meal looking back to the cross and remembering what Christ has done on our behalf, but we also take this meal looking forward to the day when we will eat and drink with Jesus in the new heavens, new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
we're reminded that one day we will be in the city with foundations. The same city that Abraham looked forward to, we can look forward to. Like I said, you enter into this story. This is one of the ways that we enter in. And so I invite you tonight, if you know the Lord and if you have professed faith in Jesus as a Christian, then I do invite you here in a few moments. The deacons are going to be coming by and passing the elements. And I invite you to take them and to to take them with us as we take them together. Now, there may be some people here tonight, and I'm so glad you're here, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You may be exploring, and you may just, you know, you may have come with a friend. This is a meal that the Bible says is specifically for those who are in Christ. So if you're not a Christian tonight, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. But just just let the elements pass. It's very easy. Just pass it to the next person. No one's going to look around. But for those of you who are in Christ, let's, let's be reminded tonight that we have a covering and we have a future. And I pray that this would stir us on toward obedience. God is calling himself for himself a people, a people for his own possessions through whom he wants to proclaim the excellencies of who he is. We are those people. And God wants to make this good story and message known to people all over this city and all over this world as we follow him in obedient faith. Let's take these elements uh, and meditate on these things as they're being passed. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.